0: Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. Uh, There's so much going on in our lives. There's so much that that fill our days and uh, so much so that that we can really forget about what's most important, that our eyes and our minds and our hearts can be wrapped around things that are, are good, but not the best. And so, Father, this day that you've given to us is a day that we desperately need to have our minds and our hearts reoriented around what's ultimately true and what it's best, what it really means to be loved by God, what it really means to have been captured by the gospel. And so I pray this morning as we come to your word that that you would do that in each one of us, that we would hear from you, that we would be encouraged to walk faithfully with you over the course of each day and each week for a lifetime at this time of gathering, would fix our eyes and orient them around you. And so would you do that by your word, by your spirit, by the very mere fact of your people gathering today to bring honor and praise to you, that you would fix our minds and our hearts on you today and throughout this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Uh, This week and next week, uh, I'm going to be reading, teaching from two different passages, two letters that are to the churches in Asia Minor. There's seven letters to seven different churches that Jesus gives by way through John um, in in chapter 2 and 3. And this week, we're going to look at the first letter. Next week, we're going to look at the last letter. This one is a letter to the church in Ephesus. Next week is the church in Laodicea. And so... We're going to kind of talk and look at the words that we get from Christ that will encourage us as it regards to the way that we can walk with him faithfully. And so Revelation chapter 2, I am going to, though I'm going to back up just a little bit. I think there's a scene in the very first chapter that we need to kind of get our minds around and see before. So if you would turn to verse 9 of chapter 1, I'm going to read through chapter 2, verse 7. And so this will give us a little backdrop and we'll jump into that. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turn, on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice... Like the roar of many waters in his right hand, he had seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And I saw him. when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen those that are those that are and those that are to take place after this as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches verse 1 of chapter 2 to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands i know your works your toil in your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and found themselves to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you are you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat. Of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This book, which we will just cover a couple passages and certainly much more that can be said that neither... uh, equipped or prepared to do a lot with but the book itself as a whole is really written for the very purpose of encouraging the saints what we have is a period of time here most likely near the end of the first century where there's great persecution great temptation for the church to compromise its faith to compromise and to to if you will combine what it believes with others to to become complacent in the way that it's living and so what jesus does in this vision in this picture for them and for us is to encourage them, to strengthen them in the faith, to enable them to maintain their witness in the midst of difficulties and challenges and stresses that will war against them and their faith. So that's what this is. This is not a puzzle to be solved, as Vern Poitras says. It's rather a picture to look at and to be encouraged by. And there's, as we look at this passage and then next week as we look at the letter of Laodicea, we want to hear the words of Christ to his church to encourage us, to strengthen us, to be faithful in our witness to him. Now, there's two visions that bracket this section, chapter two and chapter three of the seven letters. The first vision is the one that we just read of Christ, the son of man, who's speaking to John. And we have this imagery of the white hair and the golden sash and the eyes of fire and the feet of burnished bronze and the the, the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and the strength of the sun, this glory coming off of him and so we have this powerful picture of christ who is the son of man who's present with the churches and and all those images tell us something about him they tell us something we don't want to paint a picture with you know kind of flame bolts coming out of his eyes that's not the point what we want to see in the picture itself is that this is one who sees This is one who sees clearly. This is one when he speaks, he divides, and the truth is clear. This is one who has the the wisdom of the ages that is a part of him. And so when we look at the picture, we want to understand who this Christ is, this Son of Man. It's not just an image that we see with our eyes. It's an image we can see with our mind and understand who he is. But then the other end of this bracketed is the vision that John has in chapter 4 and chapter 5, which is really a central feature in the entire book. And it's this throne room scene that John has as he enters into the throne room. And there's one who's seated on the throne. There's one who's ruling and reigning and receiving all praise in chapter 4. And the praise he receives is a result of his creation, his power that's at work in and through creation. And in chapter 5, another character comes on the scene. It's this lamb. That comes who is, looks as if he has been slain. And he is the only one who is able to unlock God's plan of redemption. To actually accomplish God's plan of redemption. And John though he is weeping before the elder comes and says don't weep any longer. For there is one who is worthy. There is one who is able to accomplish God's plan. And it's a lamb that looks as if he has been slain. And we find out it's his blood by which all of the nations are ransomed because of that, and both receive praise and worship. And so these seven letters are bracketed by the vision of God, this, 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 this Jesus who is with his people, who is able to instruct and to strengthen those who are his. And then it's bracketed on the other end by this image of the one who is on the throne, the ultimate Reality for every person, and certainly for the church, is this one who is on the throne. No matter what circumstances we or they would experience, the ultimate reality is one is ruling and reigning over all things and is accomplishing his perfect plan in and through his son. And so, with these on either end, we understand what what we want to hear is that the or see is that Jesus is wanting to instruct and strengthen. And build up his church for the purpose of witnessing in the context of a culture that wars against the truth of this gospel. And so he wants to strengthen them, give them what they need. The seven letters as a a whole comprise a kind of a catalog of issues that the church would face. The seven churches here, certainly as these messages come to the seven, isn't just to these seven churches in Asia Minor in the latter part of the first century. But the imagery of the book of Revelation helps us understand that even the number seven is significant here. There are seven churches. But the picture for us is, isn't just this word comes to seven churches. It comes to the entire church of Christ. The one that he is at work within their midst. that all the, the church of all time and all places and all history. That, that he is at work in their, in their midst. Certainly there are seven churches represented, and certainly there are issues of these seven churches that he speaks to. But as, as you were, were to read through these, and we'll catch this one and the last one, you would see that each one presents a different aspect of the struggle that is present within the church. And so this one and, and, and the next one we see is kind of this, this picture. We find the church various... Uh, issues that they face depending on the circumstances. There's great zeal, there's great complacency, there's great persecution, there's great naivete, there's great uh, temptation to compromise and to assimilate with the culture, to take the gospel and combine it with other aspects of the culture and thereby undermine it. And so as he writes, we can read these seven Letters and receive instruction that we need for the different and various circumstances that we find ourselves in or the church will find ourselves in. And although there's relative health or weakness throughout these churches, one thing is for certain, no church is without its flaws. No church is without the very need of the gracious and rebuking word, word of Christ that every church needs to hear. There's something that's present in every church, no matter how good or how poor or how healthy or unhealthy that it might be, it needs to hear from the word of Christ. So we take and receive this word from him this morning, no matter where we find ourselves as a church standing, whether we think we're healthy, whether we're strong, whether we're weak, we need to hear from him, every church has within it sometimes the seeds that will be the things that destroy it. And so the primary issue of these letters is that Christ wants to strengthen his church and strengthen us this morning as we read it. And there's three things that I want to look at as we look particularly this letter to Ephesus this morning. There's encouragement for us because one of the questions that we need to ask is how is it that we can hope to stand as his faithful witnesses for a lifetime to the very end? How is it that we can hope, have any hope at all, to be his faithful witnesses to the very end? And that this letter, and indeed all the letters, has that as an end to help that particular church to stand. And we're going to look at the encouragement that we have from Christ's presence. We're going to look at the challenge that this church has, which is certainly something we can learn for, learn from. The challenge is that to hear his rebuke in the ways that our zeal for correctness can become idolatrous. And can prevent the very love of Christ coming through us. And then finally, we want to look at the hope that we have that we can conquer at all and hope to stand. Real quick, the the backdrop of Ephesus, Bill kind of touched on a lot of this number of, I don't know how long ago it was when we did, he did 1 Timothy. But uh, Timothy was, of course, a pastor in the city of Ephesus. This is a very significant city, certainly as it relates to Asia Minor. And Paul it was that established the church there, that started it, and spent probably close to three years teaching and instructing. So much so that it really was kind of an outpost for him and all the trade routes that came through. Was, of course, it was a port as well at that time. And so there, there was a, it was a very central city, and so the gospel would come through it into the the region around it and so there was a, it was used as a basis for Paul to teach and to train and instruct and so the region heard the gospel as a result and he worked hard at instructing and building up the church and of course one of the main issues of the day one of the main cultural landmarks was the temple to Artemis to Diana um, a cult there a goddess and she was she was worshipped, and much of the economic and social and religious life was formed around that temple that was there. And so as as the, the gospel grew, it would impinge upon that, and they would have to interface and interact with that particular cult that was that was present. And so the challenge in the teaching is, is certainly in light of that, as well as other cults that was present in that particular city. And we find that, that certainly even if you read back in Acts 19, that there was they were successful that the gospel went forward so much so that it was successful such that the, the economic structure of the city itself was which was built much of it on the sale of these little silver idols to the goddess artemis that uh, the, their economic their economy began to fall and these the, those who the tradesmen who would build these idols were angry because of that so it was real impact and as a result, we can see that the commendation that Jesus gives to them, that they had been successful. They had been strong in the very words that, that Paul had given to the elders to watch and to be careful about the church and to take care to shepherd the church of God. They had been faithful. They had, been, they had not allowed the culture and these other things to, to build in and to impinge on the church at this particular time, that they had, they had truly seen had been strong in this way, and so they had been faithful in, in maintaining their, their strong doctrine, and that, that was certainly important for them. As we look at the letter and we think about the context, all the letters have a kind of form, and, and, and quickly it opens with a characteristic of Christ. And the characteristic of Christ is specifically for that church. There's a particular need, and so this character of Christ in this case, it's the seven stars in his right hand and him walking among the seven golden lampstands. And then there's a commendation in most cases. Not all the churches get commended, but in most of them, they get a commendation. There's something you're doing well. In this case, it's one of the strongest commendations of all the seven. Goes on for several verses of the good things that they're doing. But then there's a rebuke in each of the churches. There's something you're doing, but there's something you're not doing well enough. And so Christ wants to correct them. And in this case, the rebuke is that you've abandoned the love you had at first. And he calls them, as in each case, to repent and respond to this rebuke. And then finally, there's a reward. There's a call to hear and a call to be one who conquers. And then a reward as a result of being one who is a faithful Witness. And in, in this case, we see the, the same form that's there for this this church in Ephesus for that. And so as we walk through this, I want to ask the question, how is it we can be faithful in our witness to Christ? You know, it's interesting. You might say, many would say, you read the Bible and there's say, does it have any relevance to us today? And you can't help but read through this and the seven letters and find that the, the things that they struggled with, the, the same kinds of things that we struggle with and in our setting, growingly, certainly non-Christian, anti-Christian against the, the gospel, that that, that, that that would have been the exact same kinds of things, similar things that they would have struggled with that we do today. And it seems that there is a slide. And we look at the future and wonder, what will it be like? What will the gospel and how will we maintain our witness? And how will the next generation maintain its witness in light of this drift that seems to be so clear in the result of our culture? How has that happened? Well, the same issues they struggle with, we can read and learn from and be challenged and encouraged by. And there's three things I mentioned before. First of all, I want to look at the encouragement we can have from the presence of christ himself and his knowledge of our situation there's a powerful image here at the very beginning of this it's this image of the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands and we're told what the lampstands on are at the end of chapter one the lampstands are the church the seven represent certainly there seven churches that are present there but more than just the seven churches it represents a church of all time and so when we see this image of the son of man God the son himself who is walking among lampstands he's not just walking lampstands he's walking with his church and he's with them throughout all time and all places all situations the seven again helps us understand the universal aspect in which his presence is applied that we know that no matter where the church is he is with them and he's there on purpose He's there for the exact explicit purpose to strengthen the light that is the church. Think about the lampstand and the light that it gives off. He is there to strengthen and to maintain that light which he has lit. To strengthen and maintain the gospel in whatever setting the church finds itself. And so that's his presence is there for that purpose alone. We have this one who's walking among the lamb stands in the midst of his church who is in a culture that is opposing it. Now, when we think about people being in a, a, in a culture that's opposing it and the presence of one who's walking among them, there's an image in the Old Testament that this echoes. There's an image that we probably learned as a child, if you grew up in church, of Daniel and his three buddies, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they refused to bow down to the idol set up by Nebuchadnezzar. It's an account, it's a story where they were, where they refused to bow down. The king calls them before him. He charges them. They're very clear on their non-compromise. They will not bow down. And the language and the interaction is is fascinating. They say, our God is able to, to uh, deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we won't. We won't even fake this one. We're not, we're not even going to make it look like we're doing this. We will not... Compromise what we believe to be true. We will not bow down and worship. And and the image there, and of course, if you read in Daniel chapter 3, you find that that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like that at all. He's not used to being um, treated like that, that others would not follow him. And so he gets furious. He, He says that he takes the furnace and he lights it seven times as hot, which just means it's as hot as it could possibly be, and he throws him in. So hot that others actually die in the process of throwing them in. And there's a, the scene there after that, as they're walking around. I don't quite know what this furnace would look like. But the king, in, in chapter 3, verse 24, the king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said, Okay, true. Yeah, that's what we did. He answered and said, But I see four unbound." walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. The fourth one is like the son of the gods. The other three, I remember those. But the fourth one doesn't belong here. One of these is not like the other. And he doesn't belong in this particular situation. But why is he there this picture of christ walking with his people who are standing to represent him and to protect worship of the only true god we see christ this prefigure of christ present with them to strengthen and to enable them to stand against and in the midst of a culture that's fighting against them and so we have this one who is the son of man present with his people and a great picture and a reminder for us that indeed he walks with us his presence is with us as well but also there's more. He's with us, but he also knows us. The, the common refrain, the common verbal in verse 2, which is in all the letters, is I know. I know your works. And in this case, he says, I know what you're doing. I know how you stand up. I know the strength in which you have fought against the false apostles. I know how you've bore up underneath the persecution. I know how you have not grown weary. I know how you have hated these other ideas that have sought to com- compromise the gospel itself. I know these things about you. In other cases, throughout the other letters, he says, he says, I know your persecution. He says to Pergamum, I know where you live. I know that you live in a satanic place. And so he says, I know your circumstances. I know what you've done. I know what you haven't done. I'm aware of those things. And for the encouragement for us is that there's great, no, great encouragement that we have of his knowledge and awareness of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And the very fact that he is with us us to strengthen us as his church. And so we see he's with us and he knows our circumstances. He sees where we are. We're reminded of that. And we go, okay, yeah, he's with us. He's not ignorant of it. And we walk through our days. We walk through our circumstances of our lives with that reality. But he goes on. He ends. There's this commendation that he has of them. And again, it's it's a rich one, and there's some great things that they have done. There's some strengths that they have, so much so that as a church, you, you would read this and go, wow, I wish that would characterize me. And if that were to characterize us, the question you would ask is, well, what's wrong? What's wrong with them? How can you really take fault with them? It seems like they've done everything pretty well. What's really wrong with them? And that's where we see this challenge, this rebuke that's there. And why is it that there's any need of rebuke at all? Why can't he just say, you know, what you've done is great. You know, just keep doing what you're doing. Well, it's because what they aren't doing, what they have compromised in a way is one hidden to them. And it's dangerous to their own light. It's dangerous to the gospel itself. So much so that the warning for them is that this, the lampstand will be taken away from them. And, and, and the, re, the rebuke is this, but I have this against you in verse four, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. That you have moved away from your love for me and for others, and you've moved towards something else. And the question we ask is, what is it that they have compromised? What have what they moved towards, and in so doing, moved away from their love for Him and, and certainly their love for others? Something has taken place that has literally cut the very heart out of their witness. That has taken their love for God, their love for his gospel and it has somehow dried it up so much so that they the gospel is at risk here and so what's happening here as we look at their strength and we compare to the weakness we can see that that something's happened in relationship to their commitment to sound doctrine to the right teaching to not compromising to protecting the gospel all very good things that helps us understand probably what's happened on the other end and one commentator writes this he says Every virtue carries the seeds of its own destruction. Every virtue, every strength carries with it the seeds of its own undoing. And I think as we look at the strength of their protection of the gospel, we can see in that the seeds of love being lost. That what's taken place there is that they have become so committed to protecting and defending that they have lost the focus, really, of this gospel going out that they really have shut the doors and kind of huddled up and said we need to protect this because the culture is so strong again. So there's so much out there that, that our goal now becomes to protect. And the strength of this doctoral uh, correctness has become their sole focus. It's become their love. It's become the thing that they love more than anything else. And it has influenced and affected the way that they live with each other and the way they live with the world outside who desperately needs to hear it. In protecting the content of the gospel, it seems that they have lost the heart of it. In protecting the content of it, it seems they have lost the very heart of its focus and what it is focused on and intended intended to do. And a whole climate of suspicion has been generated within them that seeks to threaten the gospel. The light itself is coming from them. Now it's interesting, if you go back to the book of Ephesians, the letter that Paul wrote about 30 years before, you'll see there's, there's some seeds in that letter that perhaps that we find coming to fruition here that are, have grown up. In chapter 4, verse 15, Paul writes to them, he says, speaking the truth in love, we will, by all means, grow up into the head who is Christ. Speaking the truth in love, and what, Christ, what, what Paul does there, he says that truth is, that love must accompany truth. That if you speak and use truth without love, what you have is nothing more than a weapon. That truth without love will do nothing but injure and destroy and hurt and maim. It will not encourage, it will not build up the church. And so he encourages them. Apparently, what they had struggled with is speaking the truth, but not in love. Not remembering that the truth must come in the same way the truth has come to us. When Christ comes to us with the truth about us, it's not just to obliterate us with all the things that are wrong with us like he could. The truth that he reveals to us has a very focus of transformation in our lives, of love to grow us up into Christ. And any time we use truth without love, we will do nothing but destroy And it seems that that's what they had missed. That they had truth. Okay, you got that, but you missed the love part. And then, so doing, you're going to completely undermine the power and the importance of this gospel as you do that. And you can see that, right? You live in a culture. We live in a culture that is increasingly anti-Christian and wars against the absoluteness of the Christian faith. And so we we fight this battle on every front, it feels like. And, And what you can end up doing as you begin to seek to protect the gospel and defend it which we must that what happens is that everyone else becomes an enemy they become the outsiders they become them versus us and we close the doors and we lock ourselves in we go we got to protect this whatever it takes And we forget the real point of the gospel is to go out or an attempt to protect and defend it we create an us versus them mentality and this kind of thinking bleeds over into our relationship with each other, our relationships with other churches that are real churches, others that aren't, as well as a world that doesn't care a thing for Christ. And of course we know that the enemy is not people. That our enemy is not to be, is not to be seen as people. And Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 6. He says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That's not what we fight against. Certainly people carry the wrong ideas, but it's not from them. And so we don't see them as an enemy as much as we understand that the enemy is spiritual overtly. And we learn how to interact with people who carry the ideas, but in love and understanding how we present the truth in this loving kind of manner. And of course, our primary goal is not the protection or defense of the gospel, is it? We do that. Our primary intention, our primary goal is proclamation of it. We have to protect it so we can proclaim it. If we don't protect it, we don't have anything to proclaim. But the primary goal is not just to protect, but ultimately to somehow see that others will understand and see it and experience it for what it is. And see, what they have done is traded the love for being correct, for the love, instead of the love of people, they have sought to love being correct. And so what does Jesus say? You've traded this. You've abandoned the real heart of the gospel, of loving me and loving others for this correctness. Even as he's commended their correctness, he says, but it's not going to get you there and it's going to threaten and compromise even the gospel itself. And so what's the response? What's the, what do you do? He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Remember where you, how it is you came to Christ. It wasn't through truth alone. It was through his truth Shrouded in this love that he has for you. And then certainly the passage in Ephesians 2 that we read about this grace that he poured out on us to to remember, therefore, from where they had fallen. It's a picture of the slow, gradual slide over the course of time from the joy of being captured by God's grace. From the one who tastes the love of God, who says, I know it's true, but he hasn't treated me according to that. He's treated me according to his mercy. And of course, over the course of years, in a course of a setting and situation which you're fighting against the world around you, what we find ourselves is pulling away and forgetting ultimately what, what we are to be about in terms of loving Christ and loving each other and loving others. Certainly can see that happening in each of our lives. Certainly we need to combine doctrinal zeal with the love for others and they are not at odds with each other, but one can fight against the other. Love must be present to rightly orient what we believe to be true and, and indeed kind of covered as we interact with people that's there. And it seemed what they desire, what we fall into, I certainly find myself there. Eight and a half years of seminary partly <laughs> had something to do with that where I love to be right. That my love for being right trumps my love for loving. That my love to be right trumps my love to love and that's what it's about. And you know, as I look at my relationship, with my wife, I find that that doesn't go so well. When my love to be right and to make sure she knows I'm right versus the love the, the, that I would have to, to learn how to love her. I don't, I'm not able to love if my whole soul focuses on correctness that's there. So the challenge for us is to consider the rebuke that he has. And he says, repent and do the work you did at first. Remember from where you've fallen remember this and then repent turn from it return turn from this idolatrous commitment to being right all the time in every situation and remember ultimately what the outcome is what the what the focus is is this proclamation of the gospel and do the works you did at first as we read and i mentioned about the ephesians chapter 2 passage the gospel has an outflow in our lives it has a model for us as we As that flows out of our lives of works of serving others that God has established, it will manifest itself in those ways. And it must, indeed, it must go out in that way in sacrificial kinds of ways. And so Jesus calls them back. He says, remember from where you've fallen, be immersed in the gospel of God's grace, allow that to engage the lives of others. Repent of your lost love, and I think for us, the questions to ask today is: How do I feel? How do I see people around me that don't hold the same views I do? Do I see them as the enemy? Do, do I see them, and do I take my, you know, I just want to use truth as a weapon in their lives or others who we disagree with? Do I understand that that love needs to be the goal here, and Christ Himself is the one who's the defender? He's the one who will defend His gospel. We certainly are are, are certainly a part of that process, but. Do we love in this way? And the warning, of course, is that their lampstand will be removed. If you don't remember from where you've fallen, if you don't repent of the ways your commitment to right trumps everything else, then your lampstand will be removed. And, of course, that's simple, right? A church that is void of the love that was modeled by Christ will not last long. The gospel is embodied in Christ himself and the way that his church is a picture of that models that love to a world around them. If that love gets dried up, if that love is evacuated from the church, then indeed the light wanes as well. And so that's the, that's the challenge to go, okay, the, the threat against the church is that it will be its own gospel, its own light will be diminished if indeed it doesn't hear this and respond to it. And indeed, we hear that and we see that in our lives and we repent and say, Lord, would you remind me again of what this is all about? Help me truly to speak the truth in love and to do this. And it's by his grace, we need to remember from where we've fallen, the ways that we have fallen, and repent and engage the culture around us. It needs to hear and to see the truth and to experience the reality of this love, the sacrificial love of Christ. So how is it that we can maintain our witness? Remembering Christ's presence, understanding the rebuke and our tendency towards rightness and correctness, void of love. And then finally, the word for us as we think about the, the hope that connects our faithfulness with his. In verse 7, the conclusion, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat at the tree of life. And we see here is a call to conquer. Um, and the picture, how do we conquer? Well, this isn't something that we accomplish in and of ourselves. How is it that we can? And indeed, the, the picture of conquering is a picture of being faithful. Being faithful to the very end as his witnesses, that's there. And the way that we conquer is not through things that we do; it's something and based purely upon something that Christ has done. In chapter five, we see that the Lamb who is slain, who is standing as though he was slain, is the conqueror. Five five, the the John writes, and the one of the elders said to me, "Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, is and the root of David has conquered." And then we go on to see that this lamb stands as though he was slain. And so we have a picture here of the conquering, victorious, slain lamb of God. That he was the one that was faithful. He was the one that was victorious and stands in our place. That he he maintained, he, if you will, gained this conquering through the sacrifice of his own life. The sacrificial love that he, by laying down his life. You see, Christ conquering death does at least a couple things. First, it's a means by which we can conquer, the means by which we can be faithful in our witness. And secondly, it provides a model for us. We ask the question, how is it we can maintain our witness in a culture that is opposing to him? Well, one of the key pictures for us is that it's the model that Christ has demonstrated for us. And the laying down, the sacrificial love that we would demonstrate to a world. They need to hear the truth of the gospel, but they also need to see it embodied in the same way that Christ embodied it. It tells us that our witness must be in the same manner that Christ's was, that we would live out this grace and mercy. In the same manner that we would be willing to lay our lives down to sacrifice the things we have. That our goal isn't being right, but our goal is to demonstrate this love in some way to those who are around it, to each other, certainly sacrificially giving as well as to those around us. And we can imitate the truth as well as the love of the gospel. There's an image, a picture that I have as I was thinking about this. This how is it that sacrificial love Really does embody and in, in the gospel and, and impact others. And image came to mind one of uh, a movie that's coming out. It's been around a while. And musical is the movie, Les Misérables. The musical, the book. I haven't read the fifteen hundred pages of Victor Hugo's book, but uh, seen the movie. But in it, there is a foundational scene. If you've seen it, if you know the storyline, where Jean Valjean, who is a, can- a convict and he's escaped, and he comes into the house of this bishop, who takes him in to show him kindness. And he feeds him. He cares for him in that period of time, and he's there. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean he gets up, he steals the silver. The bishop gets up, clocks him, knocks him out. And you know the story. You're, you're angry. How could, you know, he's shown him kindness, and he steals from him. And the next scene, in, 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 at least in the movie, as it, as it goes, is when, as he is brought back, Jean Valjean is brought back in. Uh, to To the bishop, and he's got a, the bag of silver, and the police is brought to him, and of course the police are there to accuse him, brings him to him, and he's and, and there's a, just a powerful interaction as the bishop there interacting with him, as they say, surely he stole this from you, and, uh, and the bishop instead of accusing him, instead of taking what he what rightfully should have been the case, the truth, instead of doing that, he gives him more, that he gives him these lampstands, and he says here. I'm going to give you these. I'm not going to accuse you in the way that I could. I'm going to show you grace. I'm going to show you mercy. And there's this powerful picture in that scene of which, and he tells him, he says, you know, again, I've ransomed your soul. And of course, we know Christ is the one who ransoms. But he modeled this kind of sacrificial love. And in this picture, lives will be changed. Lives were changed in that picture. And for us, the same is true. That as we model the Very sacrificial love of Christ for us, we see lives transformed, our own lives are transformed and have been by what He has modeled for us. Souls conquered as a result of his sacrificial love for us, not ultimately by his power, but by his mercy as he kindness and his kindness as he draws to himself. so we conquer in this way, and we have hope of being a faithful witness. By the means that Christ has given us and by the model that he provides for us. And we can't forget that. For light shine in our midst, we need to understand the model and not forget and not separate the model from the means because both are present. Well, quickly, there's a a promise to the very end here. The promise for the, the one who is faithful in his witness that he will be with God. That he will eat from this tree And he will be in the very presence of God. And you see what happens. The promise to the one who is faithful, the one who has been conquered, who understands this conquering love of Christ that is sacrificial, that what he gets at the very end here, at the very end of the book, what he gets is God himself, the very presence of God. He doesn't get a certificate that says you were right. He doesn't get a certificate that says you passed the doctrinal test. What he gets is God himself. And the gospel as it comes with us, we understand that the gospel is God himself. It doesn't say you're right or you're correct, because indeed we are not. What it says is that you were wrong, and I have made you right. And in the end, you don't get just to be right. You get me, the very presence of God. And so that's our goal. That's what we understand. And so we protect the gospel for the very purpose that we have something to proclaim. So how is it that we can live in this culture, the next generation to do that, remembering the presence of Christ and his knowledge of our situations, being careful for the ways that our love for being right can override our desire to love others. And the two do go hand in hand. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. We must maintain our doctrinal correctness, but oriented properly, fashioned properly, properly around the love of christ that he's demonstrated and our hope of being a faithful witness comes in and through this conquering death of christ that he has come and conquered us and has provided the model for us let's pray heavenly father thanks for this truth for this picture this message for us today um help us to see your presence help us to Uh, be aware of the ways we look out at the world that we we just love being right as opposed to loving that our hearts would be sad and that we would be um, diligent to maintain this love for you and others. And again, we confess this is something that you must do in and through us in our lives. Father, many needs uh, present in our congregation and so we we pray and and lift them to you and thank you for... uh, Successful surgery for Roger Hack and his valve replacement. We pray that you continue to help him as he recovers for Eva Kramer, for Nathan Slater, uh, that's there, and many others for Sheila Bloom as we see her as she continues to recover from her uh, surgery last week. Father, we pray for your um, grace and, and comfort to be with Catherine Ritter and her family at the loss of her father this last week, that you would be present with them, that she and all of those and her family would, uh, would find you to be sufficient there and um, to know them there. So be with them as well. Father, we pray for the ministry of our church as we, from shoeboxes to little ornaments and gifts that we give, to family promise and missionaries sent out that you would use us to truly be light for your gospel, to both protect the truth as well as to proclaim its truth in Christ. Father, we are grateful for what you've done and continue to commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.